Thank you all for being here. We have been going through our series uh, in Matthew chapter 25 for several weeks now, and we are reaching uh, the end. This is the last installment uh, of that series. And, uh, you know, we, in, in all of the, the lessons we've been ha- uh, having leading up to this, uh, I, I can see it. You have been warmed. Your, your little social justice hearts have been warmed by the, the uh, uh, encouragement from the, the passage that, that we have been reading. Just to give context, if you haven't been here for this series, we can uh, you know, uh, level set there. So this is the t- key text we've been working through in Matthew 25. Then the, the king will say to those at, uh, at his right hand, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you, uh, saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, or sis- brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. It's beautiful. We've had a good, we have a good time uh, in this series leading up to this. Um, here's the thing, though. This passage occurs in a context, right? It is one set of verses uh, amidst a chapter and a chapter uh, amidst an entire gospel. And uh, you may find, if you're not familiar with it, or even if you are familiar with it, the surrounding context a little uh, disconcerting. So like any good sermon series, uh, all, all good sermon series lead to hell. That's basically what we're talking about today, because that's actually what's going on in the surrounding context. So in the verses just before, what we have been reading uh, for the last several weeks, um, here's how it starts. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, to raise the stakes even higher. This is how that, th- this passage ends. You who are accursed, so we just read about the sheep and the beautiful outcome that happens to them, but for the goats it says, you who are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then he finishes, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That escalated, didn't it? Like that's where, what we're dealing with today. So I don't, we didn't think that it would be a, a complete discussion of this series if we didn't talk about the, um, the stakes that appear to be involved uh, in this discussion that Jesus is talking about. Now, again, too, keep in mind that in context, Jesus says this. This is part of uh, a, a speech that Matthew has compiled where uh, in the last week of Jesus's life, he and his disciples have come to Jerusalem where Jesus has had uh, increasingly intense altercations with the religious establishment in the area. And it will ultimately escalate into him not many days after he says this, being executed by, that, by the religious establishment. Okay, So he is saying this while that stuff is going on. And when we talk about language like this, 
in the Bible. I think for a lot of people either who aren't very familiar with the Bible, aren't Christians themselves, uh, or are turned off by language like this, it can provoke a very strong reaction. Like you can be very reactionary to actually say that, um, you know, well, if that's what uh, the consequences are for not following Jesus, then maybe none of that's for me. And so they, you know, they, uh, they hear this kind of message where it's like they are being called out as the goat and then they're like, oh yeah, so this is, this is what's going to happen. And it would create these kinds of reactions where it's often like, you know, the, you, you may even sometimes hear perspectives where they say, if that's what it's like to be a goat, then maybe I want to be a goat. Maybe being a sheep isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Often that language is used to, like of being a sheep and having that blessed inheritance is used in a negative way that, oh, that's it's just somebody who mindlessly obeys Jesus, no matter what the consequences or whether it makes sense or not. There's also this kind of idea too, where for, again, from a skeptical perspective, it would be if, uh, if, you know, heaven is where the sheep are, then I guess heaven is not for me, right? So they, the idea is, um, you know, heaven is where all the interesting people aren't. And then you could, you even hear in our culture, people glorify goats, right? You have LeBron James explicitly saying he wants to be the goat. That's, that's not a good role model, right? We can't have that kind of stuff, right? So this is, this is the kind of stakes that we're in. You know, there are, uh, people bring a lot of baggage uh, expectations and thoughts and background knowledge to this kind of text, and it evokes all kinds of reactions. Our culture also just produces a ton of ways of using this kind of language that influences us, like through shows and movies. Um, many of you might hear language like this, and if you have a background in reading this text for, you know, for decades or something like that, you may recognize a variety of movies that use this kind of apocalyptic or world-ending language, right? So this is like the famous, like from uh, several decades ago, the Left Behind series that obsesses over what is... When will these things happen that Jesus is describing? When is the Son of Man going to come? What will it be like? And these stories, are like the, you know, this Left Behind series in particular has had a profound lasting impact on what a lot of Christians and non-Christians think about what the Bible says about what it will be like when the Son of Man comes. And these, you know, they, like they, these, this book series has been adapted into movies ranging in quality from like terrible to also terrible, right? Like this is, it's a wide range. And then even, even if the, the takes that people offer in our culture are not religious in and of themselves, they're clearly borrowing religious language from texts like this and appropriating it for whatever uh, drama that they're trying to, uh, you know, accomplish, right? So there are comedies that can use these kinds of, uh, that can hinge on this kind of apocalyptic language and experience. There are melodramas. There are, like, deep, thoughtful, sad movies that, that capture it. There are action movies that can uh, capture it. Uh, serial killer thrillers. Superhero movies, right? Like, there's this kind of language is used so much that you may not often even be able to differentiate what is actually from the text itself and the surrounding context in that text versus what you've just pictured uh, your whole life from the, the culture that you have been given to you. So a big part of what I want to talk about today is we're actually going to talk through what is Jesus talking about here when he talks about this son of man coming and what should we make of the warning that he's giving this audience. Uh, who is he talking about? 
when is he describing, like when should these things that he's talking about happen and where will they happen? So that's the key part, okay? So we, if we can anchor on who this son of man figure is, when their coming is supposed to occur and where it's supposed to have an impact, I think we'll be in a much better place to make good sense of the discussion that we've been having for several weeks. So let's start. We'll go through in order. Let's start with who. Who is the Son of Man? Now, normally, I think for, for a lot of people who have been interpreting the Bible for years, they, they may be familiar with two titles that Jesus gives himself and that other people, give, uh, other people bestow upon Jesus. And that is Son of Man and Son of God. Okay, two contrasting uh, pictures. And so often, maybe this is something that you've heard, maybe it's something that you think. The idea is like, oh, well, what are the, what's the difference between the two titles? And people will say, oh, okay, so son of man, when Jesus uses that title, he is emphasizing his humanity. And when he calls himself the son of God or somebody else calls him the son of God, he's emphasizing his divinity, okay? So that's the idea. And then you can use that in apologetics debates and we're like, oh, see, Jesus believed he was God. He called himself the son of God. Those are the kinds of discussions that people often have with titles like these. The problem is that kind of definition, both for the son of man and son of God, ignores the fact that these terms have a rich history among Jewish people in the centuries leading up to Jesus that actually are very clarifying for what those things mean that doesn't force us to speculate based on like literally what those words are and what I think that means based on what, what those words are. In fact, if anything, to say that the Son of Man title emphasizes Jesus' humanity and that the Son of God title emphasizes his divinity is almost to get it completely backwards, like is to, is to get it flipped. So when we talk about Son of Man more, you will, you will get what I'm saying. The key place where there is this fleshed out image in the Bible, in the centuries predating Jesus, about this Son of Man figure occurs appropriately in an apocalyptic text called the book of Daniel, okay? So in the, in the book of Daniel, this is a text that was written uh, at least a couple centuries before Jesus, and it has a vision, as many apocalypses do, a detailed vision with lots of very weird details. And you can see depicted here uh, in this vision, there are these hybrid animals, like these monstrous figures. Uh, and in the narrative of Daniel itself, there's an unpacking of like, what does this vision uh, mean? So, so in this vision in particular, uh, in the part of Daniel where there's this son of man figure, uh, there's this description of four beasts. And those beasts uh, each have their own unique characteristics that go with them. So there is a, like a bipedal lion with eagle wings and the mind of a human. That is the description that the text gives. There's a bear-like beast with uh, ribs uh, in its mouth. There is a four-headed leopard with four bird wings. And there's, a, there's one beast that is like terrifying. It has iron teeth. It has 10 horns. One of the horns can actually talk trash. It has a mouth and it can speak. Uh, and it had human eyes. That's what the text says. Uh, and it could rotate its neck 360 degrees. That last part's not right. I, just made, I think that's from The Exorcist. Uh, I don't know if the new Exorcist movie has that as well. But either way, it doesn't, like if I said that that was in that vision, you'd be like, that makes sense to me. 
the, the, and this is the thing, right? These, these uh, like, it's, it is supposed to evoke this deep sense of fear. The, the way the interpretation of this text goes within Daniel itself is to say that each of these beasts represents a different kingdom. And these are different kingdoms who at different times in Israel's history have oppressed Israel, have had power over them in Israel's own land. And there's this idea of like this text, this image comes in a context in which Israel is in exile. They have lost their land. They have been overthrown by a foreign oppressor. And this vision comes to them in a time where they're trying to make sense of why did that happen? What can I do about it? Is there any hope for me in this time? And then in, as part of the hope in this vision, a son of man figure appears. And that son of man represents God's kingdom. It represents the faithful Israelites who make up God's kingdom. So there's the contrast then between all of these kingdoms of the world who have had control over that land at various times. And then there is the kingdom of God that will overthrow all of these other kingdoms. And so in that sense too, like you know, the son of man figure, it's not, it's not necessarily one, literally one individual human. It's the faithful Israelites collectively who represent God's kingdom or God's people. And in that sense too, I actually find it very helpful. You may see some translations actually um, change son of man to human one uh, for a couple reasons. One is to be gender, more gender accurate which I actually think is the right call here because as you can see in the interpretation of the vision, the gender of this human figure doesn't matter. The, human, the point of the human figure is that it collectively represents faithful Israelites of all genders. That's the point. The point is the contrast is not that it's a man versus other men or women. It is the contrast is that it is a human in contrast to beasts. That is what the description is trying to evoke. That is, that the contrast is, uh, and it's, you know, here too, son of man, right, is not a contrast to say, oh, it's humanity versus divinity. Again, it's humanity versus these animalistic kingdoms of the world. This is, it is to say that the kingdoms of the world are about power and violence and coercion, but the kingdom of God is about justice and mercy and perseverance and sacrifice. That is the contrast that is going on here. And by the time we get to Jesus' day, this vision of this Son of Man being this collection of faithful Israelites sharpens in the minds of people who are waiting for God to deliver Israel from oppression. So that by the time you get to Jesus' day, there are hopes and expectations that perhaps there is one Son of Man figure in particular among the faithful Israelites who is the Messiah, the chosen one through whom God will actually ultimately overthrow all of Israel's foreign oppressors for all time. And Jesus is saying when he says, I am the son of man, or he accepts somebody calling him the son of man, Jesus is saying, I'm him. I am that person in our collective hopes and dreams and visions. Okay. So when, when Jesus talks about the son of man, let's have that in mind as we go through the details too in more context in Matthew 25. 
So there is this, then there's this question of, okay, so the text that we read in Matthew 25, it says that when the Son of Man comes, then there will be this kind of sorting of sheep and goats, and the Son of Man will be evaluating uh, who is a sheep and who is a goat based on these, these behaviors, these ways of showing your allegiance to Israel's God. And so you could ask yourself, when? When is that going to happen? And I think, my guess is, based on how many of us have been reading this, like the surrounding context, we would think, oh, that's talking about like final judgment. That is talking about heaven and hell when Jesus returns, and then there will be this great separation of the the sheep and the goats. So uh, it also helps to try to, like, in trying to pinpoint, like, when could uh, Jesus be talking about, it helps to appreciate um, uh, the challenge that people may have had in Jesus's own day, accepting that Jesus himself was the Son of Man that uh, had been prophesied in their scriptures. Uh, And so that would cause them to wonder, and if they were to doubt that Jesus is actually the real deal, it would cause them to wonder if now is the time, like when Jesus is there, like could this really be the time? And I think one of the most poignant interactions where this occurs actually comes between Jesus uh, and his cousin, John the Baptist, who was a forerunner to Jesus's own ministry. And uh, in this text here in Matthew, so a few chapters earlier uh, in the Gospel of Matthew that we've been reading through, there's this interaction where John the Baptist is in prison uh, for speaking truth to power. And while John the Baptist is in prison, he actually, it seems like from this text, experiences some doubts. Because in our, in our passages we've been reading, we see Jesus as somebody who frees prisoners. And John the Baptist is like, wait a second. If you're the real deal, why am I in prison? Like this is the opposite outcome of what I was expecting. So he says, when John heard, when, uh, when John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? In other words, is, is the time actually now? Why, am, why does it look like it's not working out? And this is what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with a skin disease are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have good news brought to them. In other words, Jesus says, if you want to know whether I am the one, and if you want to know whether the time is now, go look. Look and see what I've been doing, and that will tell you the answer. And the things that he describes here are very much those same things that we've been talking about in Matthew 25. When those things are occurring, it is a sign that the Son of Man has arrived. And later, in this, as a longer part of the same context, uh, in responding to opponents who are, again, uh, um, raising doubts about whether Jesus is the real deal, Um, Jesus will say, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, look at what I'm doing. The son of man has arrived and is arriving in your midst. That's what he's pointing out. It is to say a very clear, simple answer to John the Baptist. John is saying, is he him? Jesus' response is bet. It is. The way you can know is by looking around for what's going on. Now, again, if we don't want to be dismissive of John the Baptist's plight. What he is doing is he is thinking about uh, the hopes and dreams of Israel's restoration. 
He's acknowledging the amazing things that Jesus has done in his ministry. And he also has to grapple with the fact that he himself is not free. He is in prison and many of his fellow Jewish people are and many of them are persecuted. And so the question is, how can both of those things be true at the same time? That we are still suffering, we are still under oppression, yet I see amazing things happening. I see the kingdom of God being brought nearer. And Jesus' answer really consistently throughout the Gospels is yes and. Both of those things are happening at the same time. There's a, there's a term that theologians use that we've talked about at Spark many times um, to describe this tension about the way that the world currently is uh, and the way that it ought to be. And that term is called inaugurated eschatology. Right? So again, this is, we can break it down. Eschatology meaning about the end, inaugurated meaning it has begun. So this is the idea that when the Son of Man came, Jesus, when Jesus came, he saw himself as ushering in the beginning of the end. That is where he sees himself in the overall story that Israel, uh, that uh, he is telling through, uh, that God is telling through Israel and through Jesus. So then you could ask, okay, so when will the Son of Man come? And again, the answer is yes, yes. The Son of Man came in Jesus' day. Yes, the Son of Man will come again. Yes, every time we do things in the name of Jesus for the poor and the needy and those in prison and those who are sick, the Son of Man is coming. The kingdom of God is in your midst. That's what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about the Son of Man coming in glory. Now, tightly uh, connected to this question of when is Jesus coming, when is the Son of Man coming, is where? Where is the Son of Man coming? So again, we, in, the, in the Matthew 25 passage we read, it sounds like when you talk about uh, eternal punishment and eternal fire, you are talking about the end of the world as we know it, the time-space continuum. So if you were to ask where, you would say everywhere. That would be the, you know, an idea that you might bring to the text when you hear Jesus using this kind of language. And so we frequently read, like, you know, we would read, like, where, where is this judgment going to occur? We would say it's going to occur in hell. Like, that's the idea. And there's a lot of language in this context, Matthew 25 and the chapter before it, that all makes, uh, that, that seems to uh, have this kind of language, right? So this is, as part of the same context, you hear um, Jesus saying, for as lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Immediately after the suffering of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So when you use that kind of language, it is natural to think like, oh, okay, is he talking about the end of the world? And here's the thing, in uh, like Matthew goes out of his way to actually combine uh, like into two whole chapters chapter 24 and chapter 25, one continuous rant by Jesus. So in this same passage where he's talking about, oh, you got to do these to the prisoners and to the poor and you who don't, you're going to go to eternal fire. He said this in the same context. Now, you, one thing that could help us make sense of what this rant is ultimately about would be to ask ourselves, what precipitated this rant? 
Who said something? What did someone say or ask Jesus that caused him to go for two chapters hard on them for saying this, okay? So here is, uh, here is how the Matthew 24 and 25 start, okay? So as Jesus came out of the temple and was going away, his disciples came to, uh, came to point out to him the building of the temple. Then he asked them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I will tell you, not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay? So this is what actually causes him to go on this uh, this extended diatribe. It is basically, they are, like uh, uh, the Gospel of Mark actually covers it in a parallel way and uh, puts words in the disciples' mouths where they say, as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings? And then Jesus goes off on this thing. He's basically, this is like you on your European vacation. This is what I hear when you come out. Oh, the architecture was so beautiful. And then there's this rant by Jesus that follows after it. This is actually, this I think in a lot of ways feels like the ultimate Jesus juke, where you're like, Jesus, aren't these stones so pretty? And his reply is, hold my prayer shawl. Everything you see here will be wrecked. And then you're like, when is that going to happen? And then his answer is, if you don't follow me and take care of poor people and prisoners, you're going to get wrecked too. That's the discussion that, this, that we're basically having here. And this is where, um, where it's helpful, again, to anchor on some context clues. And they're not really clues. They're very obvious, like within the text itself, for when and where these things are supposed to happen. Because here's what Jesus says a few verses later uh, in chapter 24. He says, truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. So everything we've read so far in Matthew 24 and 25, because Jesus presents this as one continuous you know, sequence or collection of events that are all supposed to happen during the lifetime of the audience itself who is hearing these words, including those phrases like eternal punishment, eternal fire, sheep and goats, and that kind of separation. All of this language is about concerns that are actually affecting his original audience in their time and space. So you could say, how, how on earth can you use language like uh, the Son of Man will come and all the tribes of the world will be present, there'll be lightning that goes all across the sky, there will be this great separation and this great judgment. Um, there are other passages, or other parts of this passage where there's going to be like a lot of dead bodies and false prophets and rumors of wars, all of those kinds of things. Like, how, like that seems very apocalyptic and very world-ending. Again, it helps to understand the, the historic usage of language like this uh, by God's people in Scripture over the centuries leading up to Jesus. So the, uh, this language of like the sun and moon uh, like collapsing and the sky being dark, all of that, that language that Jesus uses here in Matthew is taken straight from uh, an, a, a book in the Old Testament called Isaiah, attributed to the prophet who lived several centuries uh, before Jesus' time at the precipice of Israel facing uh, oppression by the Babylonian Empire, okay? 
So the, in Isaiah itself, it says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. So a prophet of Israel, hundreds of years before Jesus spoke those words to his audience, said this, used these words, to describe something that was going to happen in that audience's near horizon. And that language was used to describe the judgment that would come upon Babylon. That's what it was describing in that context. A, a destruction that happened many years ago. So again, as world-ending or space-time universe-ending as it seems, that's not the, that's not why they're using that kind of language. They, that is the apocalyptic language that they have available to them to describe the experience of the world ending as they know it, the way of the world ending, the way that they experience it. Ezekiel, another prophet from Israel's history, repurposes the same language for a different context. It says, when I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make the stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. Same language. This time, it's about the impending judgment of a different nation or a different kingdom. It's the kingdom of Egypt. That's what it's talking about in that context. Yet another prophet, Amos, uses this language again. And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. In this context, the prophet is using this language to describe judgment upon Israel itself. This is for, this was the, this, this was the, um, disastrous news that an Israelite prophet was sharing with Israel to say, because of our corruption and the way we have oppressed the people in our own land, we are going to experience the same kind of judgment that our foreign oppressors have experienced before us. And in this case, it was at the hands of the Assyrian Empire that they were, that um, part of Israel was taken off into exile. So you see, like this is, this is um, not, not space-time continuum ending language. It is way of life ending language. And that's what Jesus is describing here. So Jesus' warning really is that the destruction of the Jerusalem establishment symbolized by the temple, like the temple itself, that, that it being destroyed is going to mean that it will be the end of the Israelite way of life as they know it at their time. And it's also to say that it's a reminder of a warning that the ultimate destiny of any kingdom that tries to win by violence and coercion and oppression and the weapons of this world will ultimately face the same outcome. In fact, within days of Jesus saying this message that he did in Matthew, when he is arrested, the Gospel of Matthew actually points out that Jesus, uh, one of uh, Jesus' disciples pulls out a sword to defend him and actually strikes the guard who is arresting Jesus. And Jesus tells that disciple to put the sword away because all who live by the sword die by the sword. This is what Jesus is warning is trying to help the faithful Israelites in his midst 
avoid this coming destruction. So he's saying this destruction is coming to Jerusalem. It is inevitable, and it is the inevitable outcome of when you fight violence with violence. And he is warning them, if you can grasp the kingdom of God within your midst, if you can hold tight, you can get out of this path of destruction. You can exit the game of kill or be killed, of war and bloodshed, of dead bodies everywhere, and instead... You can be working on kingdom things, the things that God is really about, the things that we have been talking about in our series in Matthew 25. So if you were to say, all right, well, the, maybe the, so this passage, as much as it sounds like it's using language that's talking about eternal hell for not believing in Jesus, it's not talking about that then uh, that doesn't seem like a big threat. This thing happened to them back in the day. What does this have to do with me now? And what I would say is, you know, just because the, you know, it's not threatening you with hell doesn't mean that it's not a warning that is powerful and significant for us to follow today. I think for a lot of people, once they realize that a lot of these passages that we often take for Jesus to be talking about like eternal fire and eternal punishment, when you find out they're not, they're like, well, then why would anybody follow Jesus if there's no punishment for it and it's not that bad? And uh, my response to that would be like, I, I, I'm sorry that you feel that way. I, to be clear, did not choose to follow Jesus because I was afraid of the eternal punishment that awaited me if I didn't. I chose to follow Jesus because God is good and Jesus is beautiful and the things that Jesus does and inspires people to do is worth all of it. That is the approach that we would take, okay? So, let's, so once, we, once we level set on that, I think then it actually raises the question of like, that, that really is the crux of this whole series, which is, all right, how can I do those things that Jesus is encouraging his sheep to do? And at that point, I think there is a unique challenge that many of us in this room, many people in the Spark community may uh, particularly face, where I think a lot of us, when it comes to what is a way that I can do good in the world. Many of us are, we're cursed with knowledge. And that is, we're cursed with this knowledge of all the intricate sociological implications for all of the good, uh, good things that we can do, right? Many of us, right? So like a lot of people in the world, they may not know about phrases like poverty tourism, right? But you know, right, many, probably many of you know, you know, like you're, you've become acutely aware, you've awakened to this reality that sometimes when many of us with wealth and privilege try to help people who don't, we make it worse when we do it. There are even, there are many reflections, very thoughtful ones that have been offered over the years that try to get exactly at this. There's um, uh, a, a couple of Christian authors who actually wrote a book, When Helping Hurts, that was written to an audience of people um, that, uh, who, who tend to be very motivated to want to do like world justice and all these kinds of missions all over the world. And uh, a big part of their work in that book was pointing out the ways that ironically people uh, in America who mean well go to other communities all around the world and they think that they're helping, but ultimately they are doing things like uh, eroding the resilience and sustainability of the local community to which they were going. One of the big things that were surprising to the authors themselves that they reflected on after, they book, after the book came out was that many Christians who read the book actually reported experiencing basically analysis paralysis or like being overwhelmed with inaction, that the book caused them to think, okay, 
uh, if, if all the good things that I had been doing or thought about doing are actually harming people, then I don't really know what to do that can actually make an impact. Because there's this intense preoccupation, understandably, with, with wanting to make a positive impact, right? To do good in the world. And this type of anxiety that many of us have, having resources to want to help but not knowing how and being very concerned about making a negative impact uh, unintentionally, has also given rise in Silicon Valley uh, to an entire industry of nonprofits whose whole job is to help you assess impact across many organizations so you can know, you can be sure that whenever you donate a dollar or donate your time, like, don't worry, we've done the homework. We know that it will make a net positive impact on the world, right? So GiveWell was an example of this really uh, prominent uh, um, a nonprofit who framed themselves as serving that need. And they use very much like Silicon Valley language. So we're disrupting the nonprofit industry where it's all, about, it's all about a return on investment, maximizing impact. Like that's their whole deal, right? And they even, they offered for a time, they offered an impact calculator, right? They, they, they've like gotten this down to an algorithm. And then of course, after several, they, you know, a lot of analysis, they realized this is perhaps too complex, too complex of a social phenomenon for them to quantify. So they walked it back. They don't do an impact calculator anymore, but they're still trying to make that difference. And there are dozens and dozens of organizations that exist to help alleviate that uncertainty that you have. What I would say is sure, like, you know, you want to do your homework, that's fine. But if you are looking for absolute certainty on what the consequences of your actions will be, you will never find it. Jesus never offered that. That is very much not the perspective that Jesus is putting forward in Matthew 25. Uh, there is, uh, and I think in, uh, in many spaces, there, like we all, perhaps even in our workspaces, in our personal lives, we fall into the same kind of trap, this analysis paralysis, our inaction to do, uh, we're, we're so preoccupied with making sure we do the right thing or the best thing that we end up doing nothing. And, um, you know, like in a, in a lot of Silicon Valley talk, they've uh, used this quote from Winston Churchill, which Winston Churchill said famously, perfection is the enemy of progress. Now, Winston Churchill probably said it for some warmongering reasons I don't care for, but <laughs> we can take this, this very wise saying and let, give it language to what a lot of us may feel when we're thinking about how can I do the things that Jesus was saying that he was going to do, that we should do uh, in Matthew 25. In fact, Jesus directly addresses this kind of feeling in the parable that he tells right before the Matthew 25 passage that we have been going through for the last several weeks. It is not a coincidence that Matthew put this parable right before this warning with the sheep and the goats. So the parable of the talents is one of, one of Jesus' uh, more famous parables. It's a little confusing like when we translate it in English because you read parable of talents and you're like, oh, is it talking about like your skills or gifts? And it's not. Talents here means money. But if you were to apply it today, you can think like, oh, and also my skills and my gifts are like money. And so it just becomes this whole thing. But in the, in the parable itself. The, the basic premise of it is there is uh, an owner of a household who is going to go away for a while, and he entrusts varying degrees of his money, high, medium, and low amounts of his money, to three servants. And he tells them to do good with that money while he is gone. 
So the one with the high amount of money in that parable um, does some great investment, really positive return on investment. Uh, the one in the, the, with the middle amount of money does the same. And the one uh, with just a little bit of amount of money, the way the parable describes it is that that person, that servant buries it. And the reason that he does this is because I know you, household master, and I'm afraid of you. And so out of this fear, basically, uh, I did nothing. That way, at least I was keeping safe what little you gave to me. And the twist in the parable is that the household owner is infuriated that that was the case, that, that the, the, uh, this servant chose inaction out of fear um, rather than being like the, the other two servants. There is, uh, and this is exactly the type of warning that Jesus wants us to avoid, right? We, Jesus wants us to avoid this when we think about the different ways that we can do good as well. The Gospel of Matthew ends with a very similar encouragement to what we have been talking about in our series uh, in Matthew so far, where the, this is the, the, final, the final commission, and then the Gospel of Matthew is done. It has Jesus telling his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and, remember, uh, and uh, teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is Jesus saying, go, go do it. You've watched, me do, you've watched me do things for my entire ministry. You know what it's like to follow me. Now go. And he's not saying like, we don't want to be like the, uh, the servant who buried the talent, right? It's not like, oh, but Jesus, I was going to do good things, but I wasn't done with my impact assessment or I, wasn't, I just needed more data points until I was sure that it was going to work. That's not what doing things for the kingdom of God is about. The whole point of the preparedness parables, that's the category of these parables that Jesus is talking about, and the broader warning about the impending judgment is not to make you fret about the future and become paralyzed in the process, but to highlight what you can do right now in the name of Jesus, no matter what world-ending events befall you or not. That's the point. The closing lines uh, in this passage also talk about the end to the end of the age. I would argue, based on the way Matthew uses the end of the age and all of the other passages that we read so far, that he's not even talking about the end of the space-time continuum here. I think he's also talking about the event that was on the horizon of the followers of Jesus, the coming of the Son of Man, meaning the imminent, permanent shift in the Israelite way of life. That's what he was talking about. So again, this is something that he told this audience and in that time. But just because it's not talking about the end of the space-time continuum doesn't mean that it's any different for us. Whenever the end, whenever the end of your age is going to be, or whatever event that will befall you where the way, your way of life changes in every way that you know it, whenever that happens, however it comes to be, you still have an opportunity in that place to do good. That's the whole point. It is saying that Jesus is, in, is entering in the space. He's inviting us to live a life where we spend our time doing kingdom work because that's just who we are, no matter what's going to happen. It's a way of life that proclaims, no matter when the Son of Man comes, you'll find me doing these things. You'll find me baptizing people, making disciples, 
teaching them to obey Jesus and bringing other people along for the ride. Now we're going to switch into our time where we come together as a community to remember Jesus's unifying force and power that allows us to share in Jesus, to be able to do what he does. And we do this together in the form of communion, uh, and we do it as a tradition from Jesus's own time where Jesus says, for in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.